0: Welcome, I'm Doug Morgan and you're listening to Uncommon Sense, where we hunt for the truth in the topics you're not supposed to talk about, Christianity and politics. We just recently celebrated President's Day and many people don't know what they're celebrating, if they celebrated the holiday at all. Michael Whitaker of the Daily Wire Uh, In a series of articles says that the president, more than any other figure, has become emblematic of the American experiment. From humble beginnings, the office has become a symbol with august power itself. The commander in chief of the greatest military force in human history the leader of the free world and America's representative on the world stage, the de facto leader of the whatever party he belongs to, (laughs) the chief executive of the largest employer in the country who can mold and bend countless federal policies with a stroke of his pen. Their faces dominate our currency. Their figures tower over our most famous national monuments. They loom large in our imagination They dominate casual discussions of our politics. The average American may not be able to name the three branches of government, but even the most politically illiterate citizen can usually name the sitting president. But for all the pomp and circumstance, I'd wager that almost no one would be able to tell me the name of America's first president. Don't believe me? Well, if you say it's George Washington, you'd be mistaken. Yes, the United States declared its independence on July Fourth, seventeen seventy-six. Of course, yet Washington did not take office until April thirtieth of seventeen eighty-nine. The Continental Congress that would declare independence was formed on September fifth of seventeen seventy-four, and Washington would serve as America's first commander in chief. For the duration of the Revolutionary War, but during those formative years, 14 men would preside over the fledgling government as it stumbled, fled, and failed to supply Washington and his army, leaving the nation's soldiers frozen and half starved at Valley Forge. Yet for all its dysfunction, this was the government that would best the British win the critical favor of the French and Dutch and emerge victorious over the greatest empire the world had ever seen. So I would like to take a moment to salute the valiant efforts of the forgotten presidents whose existence has largely been confined to the realm of trivia. These presidents? Peyton Randolph, Henry Middleton, John Hancock, Henry Lawrence, John Jay, Samuel Huntington, Thomas McKean, John Hansen, Elias Baudon, Richard Henry Lee, Nathaniel Gordham, Arthur St. Clair, and Cyrus Griffin. Why, then, have the memories of these men been confined to the ramblings of overrated uh, columnists. (laughs) Well, the president of the Congressional Congress was not anything like the modern office of the president. Under the Articles of Confederation, the the president was not the head of a a separate branch of government. He was selected by the Congress from among the Congress, and his role was largely, well, ceremonial. He presided over the Congress and, and moderated debate and and seldom served for more than a year at a time, believe it or not. He did not set the agenda. He had no control over committee assignments, and he certainly was not given control over the troops. The members of the founding, uh, the founding uh, generation were extremely skeptical of strong executive authority. After all, weren't they rebelling against a corrupt and tyrannical king and a system that That concentrated far too much power in the hands of a single man. These were people who deeply feared the dangers posed by liberty, uh, opposed to liberty by the the mere existence of a standing army. The, The last thing they were going to do was vest the entire federal bureaucracy in one person. The Articles, to be fair, didn't have many powers to vest, though. It had no power to tax and relied on voluntary contributions to its member states. It had virtually no power to regulate the internal affairs of the states, no power to regulate commerce between them, no power to amend its basic bylaws without the unanimous consent of all states, and it could raise armies. It it, it could sometimes finance and take on debt, which the, the states, you know, may deign to repay and negotiate treaties with any foreign government that actually would take them seriously. <laughs> Barring some existential crisis, the first federal government couldn't do much of anything. The presidency was a do-nothing job in a do-nothing organization. <laughs> and in fairness, for a while, in sort, it, 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 it kind of sort of worked. But as the fledgling republic came of age in a time of peace, the, the wartime pressures that had held the, the ramshackle structure together faded away, and the hollow edifice threatened to crumble. America couldn't pay back its debts. America couldn't provide benefits to its former troops. America couldn't prevent legal disputes between rival states. Economic uh, dislocation and and open rebellion threatened to bring the whole thing down. So in the summer of 1787, the beleaguered uh, Congressional Congress authorized a constitutional convention to iron out some reforms and to see if the Articles of Confederation could be salvaged. The uh, convention was a mess. (laughs) I mean, one state, Rhode Island, refused to send any delegates at all. About a third of the delegates who were uh, appointed didn't actually even show up. The 55 men who actually did show up, however, were among the most highly educated, politically seasoned, uh, maturely successful in in the country. And most of them had served in Congress. Several had been state governors, and many had, had been in government since the revolutionary days. Described by their their uh, contemporary, uh, Thomas John, uh, Jefferson, uh, as a as a council of demigods, these titans of law, commerce and finance and industry crowded together in a small assembly hall in Philadelphia. And with the windows closed so that eavesdroppers couldn't listen. And over the course of an agonizing, hot and muggy summer with no air conditioning, of course, tried to see if they could salvage this thing tensions were really high and and one of the first conclusions drawn by the convention was that the art- articles were broken beyond salvation and the only way to the only way to go forward was to start over from scratch and to be clear these men who had spent years of their blood their sweat and their tears to create this nation looked at the first draft of the American republic and said eh we'll keep the name <laughs> there, there were many controversial issues debated at the convention, as you might think. The, the structure of, of Congress, the balance of power between the, the federal government and the states, and, and that ever, you know, fatal issue of slavery. But the, the, the nature of the um, executive and, and what would become the presidency was among the most loaded issues of all. At the Congressional Convention, the the specter of monarchy um, cast a a long shadow over the discussion of the presidency. The the failures of the Articles of, of Confederation notwithstanding, everyone still remembered King George and the unified executive power left a foul taste in many mouths. Reasonable voices could point out that while a body... Of, of de- desperate interests might fight among the, themselves. A unified power is in an ideal position to grasp even more power. A president can act quickly and decisively during a crisis, and then refuse to relinquish those powers once the emergency has passed. We we've seen that in a lot of democratic governors since COVID. However, a strong executive could also do things which. Kind of, uh, de- uh, de- it's kind of deliberative's uh, the the body's um, structure. So, some situations like an invasion or a rebellion require quick and decisive action. Um, the uh, continent of history, a handful of delegates tried to to square this circle by following the example of the Roman Republic. Right, so they they tried to look into history and they tried to say, okay, maybe we can learn from it, like like America. Rome had had thrown off tyrannical kings, and loathed monarchy ever since. But unlike America, Rome had extremely powerful magistrates. They were called the the consuls, who held the power of life and death over their citizens and were immune from legal um, prosecution while in office. However. There were two consoles, and each had unlimited veto power over the activities of the other. This has some advantages. I mean, the executive can act quickly and decisively when necessary. But if one console gets power hungry, well, the other console could check him. However, the plural, plural uh, executive situation um, comes with its own suite of problems. What happens when the two consults disagree? Well, mutually assured vetoes means nothing happens, in which case we're right back where we started. Worse, when a um, consular army was um, deployed in the field, the command altering between the two just results in a disastrous situation. I mean, you you can't, they don't know who to listen to, Right the the um j- just just kind of looking back and observing that a house divided against itself cannot stand and and the framers they they tabled the the plural executive almost immediately so they looked at that and said nope that's not for us of course the romans had a different office that they called that they that they would fall back on in extreme emergencies where the senate could appoint one man whose word was law kind of like a dictator right but if you've ever heard the name Julius Caesar, you know exactly where the story goes. Dictators aren't good. It doesn't go well. And terrified that their Frankenstein creation might turn into a dictator despot um, there, and, and really uh, just, just take away any kind of, of freedoms that, that, that they might have, well, the the convention quibbled over the specifics of how this would look. Should the president be you know selected by states or should he be selected by the, the Congress or maybe popular election? Should he be elected for life? Um, you know, and 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 be there you know, contingent on good behavior? Or should he only be eligible to serve you know a limited term? Ultimately, the convention actually took a cue from the enlightenment philosopher um Uh, Montesquieu, who uh, decided that the, the executive and the legislative branches should be separate and separated and alongside the judiciary. Their powers could be turned against one another to check ambition with ambition. You see, it's that checks and balance type system. Congress could have no role in selecting the president, but would have the power to confirm or deny the appointments of his most important underlings and his desired judges. Impeachment was left on the table as an in case of tyranny break glass type of safeguard, right? With a further safeguard of two-thirds threshold for conviction in the Senate so that the House couldn't just simply impeach happy, you know, they, they could be impeach happy for political purposes, which, of course, we've also seen recently, right? The president could veto legislation, but the Congress could override that veto. The president commanded the military, but only Congress could declare a war. And the Smorgasbord Electoral College gave the people and the states the power to reward or replace the chief executive quite regularly. All of this wasn't enough to satisfy the detractors. And according to the Anti-Federalists, the power of the presidency was one of the major deficits of the constitution but supporters would point out that george washington would inevitably be the first proper president and that his administration would set the standard for all his successors washington had already walked away from absolute power after relinquishing his command at the end of the revolutionary war and is perhaps unique in american history for the unique administration and trust americans of all political backgrounds had for him if anyone could could paper over uh, amb- ambiguities or you know deficiencies in the office it would be him now washington would set the tone for the presidency in in many ways he supported the adoption of the bill of rights which would further limit the federal government's powers in an age of, you know, regal titles and, and, and in, in, inst- instead he, he didn't want his highness or his majesty, he settled on the simple, really honorific of Mr. President. He treated his veto power not as a stamp of approval, but as a tool of constitutional review. He would veto only two bills on the grounds that he thought they were unconstitutional and crucially after being unanimously elected and 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 widely popular he stepped away from power after two terms setting a precedent that would voluntarily observed by his successors a, a a precedent that the office was greater than any one man well until Roosevelt came along and ruined that but unfortunately america would peak early and hard uh, John Adams, our our second president, would uh, overreach his authority by pushing through the Alien and Sedition Acts, which led to the jailing of some critics of his administration. Although he did did he did admirably uh, set the the precedent for a peaceful transition of power. Jefferson was famously said that that government is best that governs least. Admittedly, he stretched his own powers to secure the Louisiana Purchase, but, you know, whatever. The power of each subsequent president would ebb and flow, but the, the the trend line was was clear almost immediately. Over time, the president would wield greater and greater influence. While each president has had his own approach to the office and has tested the boundaries of his authority in different ways, the tenure of the founding generation has comparatively subdued. Each of their their own strengths and weaknesses, you know, they they each had had them, but from Washington to um, Adams, to Jefferson, to Madison, to Monroe, and to Adams again, there was a broad consensus on what the president could and could not do. The consensus, however, would be challenged by a consummate outsider. Andrew Jackson was a loyal, high-water mark of of, of presidential power. A a rough and tumble man who loathed most of the established political players. Jackson carved a path all his own. Ignoring Washington's example, Jackson vetoed more legislation than all of his predecessors put together. In the case of Worcester versus um, Georgia, when the Supreme Court ruled that the Cherokee Nation had a right to their own land under federal treaty and could not be removed, Jackson Jackson completely ignored them supposedly saying that the chief justice John Marshall has made a has made his decision now let him enforce it <laughs> a move which ne- neatly embodied the watchman problem uh, if the man tasked with enforcing the law simply refuses to enforce it then who enforces the law upon that enforcer a few of the of his successors would match jackson's influence until Abraham Lincoln was elected, and often listed first in the pantheon of American legends, few men have been as revered by history and as reviled by their contemporaries as the man who saw the country through the Civil War. Lincoln steered the country through an uh, unprecedented crisis and rightly deserved credit for the extraordinary achievement of accomplishing slavery, which uh, and abolishing slavery, actually, which his predecessors, um, despite their best efforts, could not match. To do so, however, he became indisputably the most powerful American president upon uh, up until that point. And Lincoln suspended um, habeas corpus, which he, he had he had uh, uh, descended new, um, he had uh, de- uh, de- detained newspaper editors and, and jailed them. He he instituted the nation's first income tax, which was not constitutional at the time, and an incredibly unpopular uh, draft uh, that he instituted. And while the um, you know, the proclamation was undoubtedly a great achievement, it was also a massive exercise in executive power that would not have been legally tenable at the time outside of, you know, being at war. For these reasons, Lincoln was painted by his enemies as a tyrant. And while history remembers him as a liberator, this was the reason that, you know, six uh, tyrant uh, tyrannists was cited as a uh, as a defense for his murder. Few of, of his immediate successors match Lincoln's gravitas or historical impact. And His vice president, Andrew Johnson, would scuttle many Republican ambitions for uh, reconstitution. In retaliation, Congress would take the uh, comparatively rare step of infringing on the presidential powers by passing a law demanding that he could not fire any members of his cabinet without their approval and then impeaching him when he went ahead and did it anyway. The law law wouldn't stand up in court, but Johnson avoided removal from office by a single vote in the Senate. For the sake of brevity, I I will gloss over the presidents of the late 19th century who, compared to the heights of Lincoln and Jackson, were relatively weak executives during a a period where Congress was largely ascendant. However, by the 20th century, the presidential um, trend Came back with a vengeance. This this was the era of the imperial presidency. While there were comparatively uh, subdued executives such as like Calvin Coolidge and and Warren G Harding, uh, there were many more activist executives such as William McKinley and Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and and Lyndon Johnson. Each of whom vastly expanded the power of federal government with military interventions abroad, like the, the Spanish-American War, the Roosevelt Culinary, the, uh, World War I, World War II, Vietnam, that type of thing. And, and great economic intervention at home, from, uh, from trust-busting to the New Deal, to the, the great society. The advent uh, and... and And the permanent income tax and the Federal Reserve at the start of the century gave the federal government far more resources. And since the the day-to-day operation of the federal government is primarily carried out by the executive branch, which the president has really total authority over, this naturally multiplied the power of the presidency. To illustrate this point visually, when the White House complex was first constructed, every cabinet department would fit within it. The Treasury Building was directly on the on uh, the mansion's east, and this, uh, while the State Department, and the War Department, and the and the Department of of Navy were headquartered directly in its west. But but the 1870s, the the, the west side of the complex complex was remodeled and transformed into what was the largest office building in the world at the time. In order to house those same departments, the building still stands actually as the Eisenhower executive office building. And as of now, it houses some of the presidential office staff, the advent of mass media. Uh, also contributed to the president's powerful bully pulpit and uh, an ability to shape national policy discussions. When uh, communications were slow and Congress, you know, congressional districts were smaller and more isolated, it was almost impossible for a president to communi- communicate with the entire nation in any, any timely fashion. Improved imp- infrastructure and later, of course, radio and television allowed presidents to broadcast their agendas and ideas directly into the homes of everyday Americans. As the a, as a principal figure in the expanded national government, the president naturally received a massive share of the media attention. Increasing American, uh, American militarism has also increased the relative importance of the presidency. A commander-in-chief is far more consequential in wartime than in peacetime. With the American forces deployed in multiple theaters uh, across the globe and with America's nuclear uh, uh, assets uh, easily capable of leveling human civilization, the man who controls all that awesome military might is very powerful indeed. But the expansion of uh, of the executive power is not merely a consequence of the growth of the government as a whole, or the, the the ease of of mass communication, or American adventurism overseas, there there are others uh, uh, other processes at work. Um, be, because, as mentioned previously, Congress uh, has the executive constitutional authority to declare war, but it hasn't done so since 1942. So so what's going on here? Well. As the federal government has grown in size and scope, the the trivial details of day-to-day affairs has expanded well beyond what Congress can manage. So in other words, what happens is Congress will make a law, but it won't be very specific. It doesn't get right down to the specifics of things. And it just lets the bureaucracy um, basically come up with policy. But beyond the pragmatic justification of and expediency, uh, of of this, why has Congress given up so much power? Because it does give up power to do this. When the presumption behind the checks and balances is that every constitutional actor would jealously guard their powers against the infringement of of, of others, because because institutions do not have incentives, individuals do. Voting one way or the other on any specific regulation might cost a representative support in in the next election. So instead of, you know, saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do, they just get really vague. And if it if it goes badly, well, it wasn't me, it was this bureaucrat. And, you know, since it was this bureaucrat, you, you need to reelect me to go and fix it. Right? You see, it it is difficult to condense centuries of political development into any reasonable time frame without losing some nuance or detail. But the broad strokes are fairly clear. The president has become the most powerful man in the world. But that was not what the office was intended to be. You see, the office was intended to be just simply one branch of government. The office was definitely not intended to be a king. I mean, they, people wanted Washington to be a king. They, want, they, they asked him, would you please be our king? Many came from that type of system, but many also saw the flaws in that system. I mean, that is a big reason why we are a country today, because of the flaws of that system and people that were trying to escape that. And Washington knew that, and he said, no, I'm not going to be your king. The the office should not have that much power. And so our founding fathers, who literally were geniuses, I mean, to think about these men who, (laughs) I mean, there were so many more people that were supposed to be there, but they failed to show up. They didn't want to show up. And yet those 55 men literally put together something that had never been seen before. They learned from history. They understood what what went right. And they understood what went wrong with these systems that weren't a dictatorship and weren't something where a monarchy, where you have a king and a queen they learned from these things and they said you know what they 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 took that and they took the bible and they said i think we can make something better i think we can make something that allows people the freedom to do what they want to do that gives them the freedom to to to, to worship whoever they want to worship that gives them the freedom to speak out and say what they want to say that gives them these freedoms that aren't given in any other system and they did this and they put this together, and they did it without saying that one man should have it. Because, yes, I mean George Washington, he was a really great guy. in, in, in as far as when you when you look at what he did for our country and what and 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 the uh, the courage that it took to do the things that he did, not just militarily, but militarily, yes, but also after that, and and saying, hey, this is what a president should be. When you look at all of that. You know, even even when he would even if he was to be the king, what would happen after him? It would all fall apart. And so these men, they were geniuses and they put together the system that we have. And as as we commemorate the men who held that office, and the the office of presidency was just one of three branches and made it what it is today, we should ponder this. Is the presidency what it should be. I would love to hear from you on that. I would love to hear whether or not you think the president today and the presidency today is what it should be. And you can always do that at UncommonSensePodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast is a production of Morganite Communications.